instructions was to whet your appetite for this morning's sermon. And I hope that you've uh, been able to glean a little much um, about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to spend more time in it. Uh, follow the basic principles of asking questions and answering it from the text. The, there are different ways in uh, which you can approach the observation aspect. What we did was uh, more of an analytical approach. Then there's the overview approach. So you ask general questions and you work your way through that. We were looking at each word that is more of the analytical approach, which both are helpful. Uh, find a niche, find something that you enjoy doing and work your way through the passage. Ask uh, um, questions and answer the questions from uh, that uh, passage. And as you work through it, uh, we have been trained to think practically. We have been trained to think in application aspects. And yes, application is important because you need to know what to do. But every author applies his own book or writing. That's what Paul does in this book. What is the main point of the book of Colossians? Anybody should know by now. The what? Supremacy of Christ. That is the main point. He starts off with that. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. In other cases, Paul would say Jesus Christ. But he leads off with Christ Jesus. He does not say an apostle of God. He does not say... Um, an apostle called, he says, an apostle of Christ. From the very get-go, Paul makes Christ preeminent. I've been a, sent out as, an, a messenger, as, an, as a messenger of Christ. Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Again, you will see this word in Christ appear often in this book. Why? Because this is the Mount Everest of Christ-exalting books in the Bible. Christ is supreme. The, the zenith, the, the pinnacle of Christ-exalting passages is found in this book. Foundational to understanding of the book of Colossians is chapter 2, verse 8. What we will do now is use the other passages in the book to fill in how important verse 15 through to 17 is. Notice that he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental uh, spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So don't be deceived. Don't be led away by philosophy, by human tradition, by anything other than Christ. Follow Him. That's an application. Paul's writing so that they would not be taken captive by deceit. So that they would not follow what this world believes about Christ. Anything that distorts truth about Christ... Anything that distorts truth about his supremacy is Christ diminishing. Make sense? Anything that detracts from who he is, from his position, from his supremacy, distorts, not only distorts, but also suppresses or diminishes Christ and is therefore deceitful. 
error with regard to Christ is no small matter. If Christ is not powerful enough to create, if Christ is not powerful enough to sustain, if he's not supreme enough over all things, then we have demoted him to be equal with all things. If, he's not the, if he is not external to creation, then he's part of it. Any trickery in the doctrine of Christ distorts the true vision of Christ in Scripture and therefore has direct implications for how we live. So two reasons why Paul writes this book. Number one, it is corrective. And number two, it is proactive. It's corrective. Look at verse 18 and 19 of um, chapter 2. Let no one disqualify you, uh, disqualify you insisting on asceticism, asceticism uh, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head. Where does that come from? Verse 18. The head from whom the whole body, again verse 18, is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligament, grows with a growth that comes from God. In other words, do not be disqualified by following people. Do not be disqualified by setting your mind on yourself or sensuous things. Do not be disqualified by being distracted. But focus on the head. Secondly, if you look down in verse 20, it says, If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of this world, why, is, uh, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit yourself to regulations? In other words, if then Christ is your head, why do you live as if he's not your head? So first of all, Paul writes to correct a wrong thinking about Christ because a wrong thinking about Christ will influence a wrong walk in Christ. That's the second aspect, which is proactive. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, not on, the thi uh, set your minds on things above and not on the things of the earth. If you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ who is your life, that is now, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. In other words, if you understand who he is as your head, then you ought to live with him under his headship. That means you don't get to do what you want and live the way you want. Hence, verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. And it goes on from there. That is to keep them to live in a proper way if Christ is their head. The totality of Christ's supremacy, the importance and significance of who he is, is not just a theological point that Paul is making. When he starts in verse 15 of chapter 1, his goal is to get to chapter 3. Well, this is how it impacts you as a believer. This is why understanding Christ as head and creator of all things is important. Because if you don't, you will not live correctly. 
For Paul, understanding Christ is, is important not only in relation to creation, but in relation to how he governs the church. If he's head over creation, then he's head over the church, which means if he has the right over creation, he has the right over his church, which means you don't get to live the way you want. If Christ is not the supreme head in creation, if he's not the supreme head over all things that exists, then we have replaced him with a weak imitation, either of angels or science, and we've made him equal to or less than the thing that we've exalted. Nothing compares or should compare to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. If we exalt anything to the place of Christ, if anything replaces Christ, whether it's in the church or in creation, then Christ is not worthy of worship. That Christ is not God. In Colossians 1, Paul gives or begins with a Christ-exalting, Christ-magnifying truth. This supreme truth brings us to the understanding that there is one person who not only controls creation, who's not only over creation, but demands obedience from his creation. And he has the right to. This is important because having a right view of Christ derails us from the lies and the deception that is in this world and will lead us to a proper life that is Christ honoring and Christ glorifying. Our theme this week, weekend, was Christ and creation. So why does creation matter? Number one, because it magnifies Christ. It magnifies the supremacy of Christ. Why does Paul write this? Two reasons. To keep believers from false deception and to help believers to live under their head, which is Christ. So Paul outlines the supremacy of Christ with regard to, number one, creation, and then secondly, the church. He defines the person of Christ, claiming the absolute supremacy of who he is, and then says, well, if this is who he is, then this is what it means for the church. And we will look at those two points this morning. I have five points, but I don't think I'm going to get through it since we're already halfway into my time. Number one, Christ is the visible God made manifest. So what I'm going to do is, as you've, as we've gone through these verses and made basic observations, I'm going to take some of those notes that we've gathered together and work it into the sermon. Help us understand why it is important that we do start with observation and how those crucial questions lead us to understand how it uh, applies to us as believers. Uh, remember I said the author will apply his text. I've already pointed out two ways, right, in Colossians 2. 8 um, and 17, 18, and then also chapter 3. Those are two basic ways in which Paul applies his uh, text. Verse 15 has two clauses. Read with me. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. First, the demonstration of who he is and the supremacy of of who he is. 
two realities about Jesus Christ. What does he mean when he says the image? He's the image of the invisible God. The word is literally icon. I think you can get an image by just that Greek word icon. Uh, if you think of a coin, there's an imprint on the coin. And whoever, I don't look at coins anymore. But, <laughs> but whosoever image is on there, that is a representation of the person, right? It's not him. But this word in, in the Greek language has the idea of both the resemblance and manifestation. Both are true in this word. It was used to speak of the reflection of the source. For instance, when you go to the mirror, who do you see in the mirror? You don't see yourself. You see a reflection of yourself. That is not you. If, if that is you, there's a problem. Um, you may be struggling with what Carl does. I mean, have you seen his drawings where there's multiple heads on one person that, that we'll pray for? <laughs> That's not what is in view. It's an exact reflection of the thing opposite. That's what image has in view. So when it says that Christ is the image, that is in view. He's the exact representation of Christ. But there's also the second aspect, which is manifestation. When Caesar put a signet ring on a letter, he was not there in person, but his authority was represented by that signet ring. His authority was made manifest by the icon on that thing or the, the, the letter that he sent. That is in view as well. It is not only the reflection or the representation, but the manifestation of him, of the thing that is being represented. Listen to how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. I'm going to read from verse 3. And if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, those who are perishing, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Exact same phrase, who is the image of God. The gospel magnifies the glory of Christ, who is God. The exact representation and manifestation of who God is. This word was used in a variety of different ways to speak about how men exchange the glory of God to idols, icons here on earth. But there's a more significant connection here. Genesis chapter 1. God created them in his what? image and likeness. Paul catches this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm not going to go there just because of time. There is a connection to creation and when Paul says that he is the image of God, it conjures up someone who also was created in the image of God. But there's a difference. Adam was created in the image of God, but Christ is what? The full expression of the image of God. 
Christ is not created as the image of God. That is a struggle that the people in Colossae had. Yes, yes, yes. He, he is the image of God because he was created to demonstrate the image of God. No, Paul says. If you want to see God, look at Christ. In other words, he is God. Adam was not and would never be. Man was not and will never be God. There is one God manifested on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Whatever God is, that is what Christ is. Spiritual, omnipotent, omniscient, glorious, perfect, holy. All the attributes of God is found in Him. In fact, Paul tells us that in Colossians 2.8, for the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him. That is the same point that he's making. Why? Because Paul has one thing in mind. To make Christ supreme. I think it's verse 18, not um, verse 8. The fullness of Godhead dwelt in him in bodily form. Is it 2.8? All these things were written to demonstrate who Jesus is. Now what does it mean that he's the image of the invisible God? When I first looked at this a few weeks ago. Image of invisibility. We looked at this um, on Friday, right? How do you reflect invisibility? You don't. The invisible has to become visible. That's the point. He is the manifestation of what you cannot see. The word is literally without sight, invisible, not being capable, capable to look upon. So what Paul is saying then is that God has made himself manifest in one person. That is Christ. You cannot physically see God. You cannot physically touch God. You cannot have a meal with God. But you can with Christ. He had hands. He had feet. He had flesh and bones. He could eat. He could sit and have fellowship with us. Imagine that. Having time with God. Think Old Testament. When God came down in His glorious majesty in the tabernacle. Go a little bit further back than that. On the Mount Sinai, what happened to the people? They feared. When he demonstrated who he was, they feared. And here, what Paul is saying is that that glory, that majesty came to walk amongst us. The invisible deity became visible. The timeless one stepped into time. That is why I said to you, forget time. It's the eternal one who took on flesh and blood for a short period of time so that he may die. God became a man. You have the gospel right here expressed. Because without creation, without him making matter, there is no way that God becomes a man. The point is that Christ is the invisible God made visible. God had to create this world of matter 
the world of flesh and blood so that he may come into this world. Why? Chapter 1, verse 13. He, this is God the Father, delivered us from the domain of darkness. At this stage, just underline domain of darkness because we'll get back to that in a moment's time. And transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Why that language? Domain and kingdom. Because the son is a realm that he owns. And he, as the last Adam, will come and make for himself a people that will dominate and rule in that kingdom with him. Just like the first Adam has a people, so the last Adam will have a people in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins of sins this is not possible if god does not create matter let me put it this way this is not possible if we leave it to chance if we leave things to naturally evolve over time you got to hope that that little fish decides to become a human you got to hope that he eventually develops lungs and walks onto the earth and becomes a man so that Christ would eventually become a fish and a man. No. Evolution makes absolutely no sense in theology. God determined beforehand that he would create a world, create a man, Adam. And in this world, and likened to that man, his son will be born. And when we say son the kingdom of his son, it has got nothing to do with him being lesser than God. Since God has a son, and since God is eternal, his son is eternal. Since God is infinite, his son is infinite. The son has the same right as the father. Now in your home and in my home, that does not work, right? Because the father has full right in the home and the son has no right in the home, in my home. But with regards to God, what the Father has, the Son has. Isn't that what Jesus says? All that the Father has, he has given to the Son. Because the Son has equal right, equal authority, and equal power just as the Father. But, let's say Adam was a monkey. If Adam was a monkey and it evolved over millions of years... Why is the last Adam then a man? Why, why would he need to be a man? He had to be then born as a monkey to redeem those who are from the monkey race, right? Because then he's going to redeem everybody who are under Adam. If Adam went from monkey to man, then Christ has to redeem monkeys as well. The analogy doesn't work. He's not born as a monkey, he was born as a man. Well, a babe becoming a man. If we fail to acknowledge creation in the way that God declares it, we distort the glory of Christ. That is why theistic evolution makes absolutely no sense. Without a literal creation in the way that God says he created it, a man uh, on day six, there is no need for a literal Christ who came in the form of a man. If you hold to theistic evolution, 
then you have exalted natural progress of life and science over Christ. Why? Because in the supreme focus is not Christ, but man. But what Paul is doing here is something different. The supreme one in creation is who? Christ. So first of all, Christ is the invisible God made visible. Secondly, Christ is the firstborn of creation, and you should know this by now. What does this mean? Well, it doesn't mean he was born first, because in English it seems like it means that. Arianism, that false view, believed that Christ was the first of God's creations. Part of his view was derived from this verse, verse 15. So then if Christ was created first, then as a net result of that, everything created after him is subordinate to him. But that is not what Paul is saying. This word, firstborn, can also mean preeminent in rank. Psalm 89, that verse Victor wanted to go through to yesterday. We will look at now. In the Bible, firstborn can be used in a variety of different ways. And when it is used of rank, it can only mean one thing. Look down at verse 27. Speaking of David. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. If you know anything about Hebrew parallelism, normally in this case, um, the second line qualifies or explains the first. Let's read it again. I will make him the firstborn. This is David. So is he making him the one to be born first? Not at all. But it is explained in the next line, the highest of the kings of the earth. So who then in the realm of man, is going to be the most or the chiefest king, David. So firstborn relates to his rank, having the supreme place as king over the other kings of the earth. That word is also used of Christ in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The idea of firstborn is that he is the highest the most supreme of all creation. Not created, but exists in the position of, he alone possesses this position. See, if Christ is created, then he's part of creation, which means creation does not have to worship him. Then creation does not exist for him. But if he is the invisible God made manifest, then creation is subordinate to him. Let me put it this way. The first part of the clause is explained in the second part of the clause. He is the image of the invisible God. How is that made manifest? The one who is supreme over all creation. Christ is magnified in his position over what he has made. The firstborn then relates to the capacity to create. In fact, we actually see it in the next line, in verse 16. For by him all things were created. So again, firstborn is explained 
What does it mean for him to be firstborn while the one who has the right and supreme position as creator therefore creates all things? The one who is the invisible God made manifest is the one from whom all things come. And I'll get back to that in a moment's time. Why make this point? Well, because of the emphasis of the supremacy of Christ. I think that's obvious. If he's God, then he is supreme. If he's the image of God, then he is supreme. That means there is no higher place for him. He has the highest position in all of creation and everything that comes from him is subordinate to him. That is absolutely true. But also contextually. There were those who believed that Jesus and angels had the right to receive worship. They were on equal standing. And so Paul makes this astounding statement of reality. There is no one higher than Jesus Christ. There is no one who has a higher position than him alone. He is the only God. And he alone has the highest position in all of creation. In other words, Christ is absolute. Thirdly, Christ is the creator of all, all things. This is seen in verse 16. The creator of all things. This is easy to follow through, so we'll, I'll just mention it and move on. He is the originator, he's the agent, and he's the goal. By him, through him, for him. Those three uh, prepositional phrases is the sum total, the essence of what this verse is about. But take note of the little word for. This word actually points back to the last line, which is the first one of all creation. So he's, he's supreme over creation because of this. For this very reason, by him all things were created. In him, um, sorry, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The explanatory, explanatory clause here relates to what it means for him to be supreme. The only reason he is supreme is because he is the one who, is who has the capacity to create. What does Genesis 1 tell us about God? He is the Creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Paul says, yes, that one who creates is this one who became flesh and blood. And let that sink in. The creator took on the form of his creation. Why? Verse 13 and 14, so that he might redeem us. In short, he is preeminent because he is created. He created all things. That's what Paul says. By him all things were created. That means there is nothing that is excluded out of that realm. Nothing. Even the hill in Jerusalem. Even Golgotha was created by him. Why? So that there would be a cross made from a tree that he would die on. Even the thorns, even the thorns that pierced his brow, even the, the metals 
that made the nails was made by him. And when he created, he knew the things that he made would cause his death. And yet, he created. Why? Not because of who you are, but because the cross is the means to magnify his glory. Jesus here is described as the designer and the originator of all things. The architect, the builder, but also more significantly the sustainer. The glue that holds the universe together is Christ. If all the realms of science fall apart, if gravity ceases to exist, and the only thing that would keep this world together is the word of Christ. In other words, it may break your mind, you don't need the sun to have light. You do not need molten lava to have gravity. You don't need physics and science for life to exist. From a scientific point of view, we, we're going to say, no, no, impossible. Yes, well, everything that you see is made from nothing. Not in the evolutionary sense, but from a creative, spoken word kind of sense. The entire spectrum of space, the vacuum of space is created by God who is Christ, which means it is finite. It is not limitless. So even if it is expanding, it is filling the void that God has made. It's not eternal. Let's think about it in this way. Everything in this galaxy is created for one purpose. One purpose. To magnify Christ who will come to this earth. Why this earth? Because this is the only place that life exists. Yes, there are no aliens. There are no planets that is habitable. No, there is not. There is no some space scum that could evolve into a new race. It doesn't exist. Why? Because there's one planet that has life. That needs to be redeemed. And it is this world. The only reason verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1 make sense. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption and, uh, and the forgiveness of sins. The only reason that is possible is if God creates a world where there will be sin, for, the fall, and people that can be redeemed. So this little blue earth, this little blue planet is the only place in the entire galaxy that has life. Why? Because this is where Christ will come to redeem those who have died. Now there are those who say, well, you see the death of Jesus Christ is sufficient to save all people on all planets. That's science fiction. Christ died on this earth to save the people on this world. Why? Take note what he says. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. The emphasis is the heaven that relates to this earth. Visible and invisible in relation to this world. 
whether thrones or dominions or authorities, or rulers or authorities, all things in relation to this world was created by him. So no, nothing else other than this little blue planet. In other words, this universe is not you-centered. It's not pointing to you. This entire universe is what? Christ-centered. Because he made it for himself. By him, through him, and for him. Now let's think about this. He says that all things were created in heaven and on earth. I think that's obvious, right? Everything that exists in heaven, whether it's the angelic realm or the sky where the birds fly. It doesn't matter. It's created by him and on earth. So that's basically everything. But then he explains it a little bit more. Visible and invisible. What is invisible? What do we not see? Well, the things that we don't see, which is angels and the quantum realm. <laughs> the things that we cannot see with our physical eye is what is in view. Take note of the next line. Where the thrones or dominions. Who sits on a throne? Kings, rulers. Remember that word dominion? Go back to verse 13. He delivered us from the dominion or the domain of darkness. The word generally here for dominions relates to the rebellious angelic realm. So both rulers who do not want to submit to Christ and the angelic realm who refuse to submit to Christ post-creation. They were created by him. So good kings, bad kings are still created by him. Good angels, bad angels are still created by him, which means both good, good kings, bad kings, good angels, bad angels are under whose authority? Christ's. Lead even further. Rulers and authorities. Yes, even our corrupt government is under his Authority. Sorry, brother. Lo you looked up very quickly there. <laughs> yes. Everything, even the rulers of this world who refused to bow the knee to him, was created by him and is magnified in it. Even though they do not want to bow the knee now, they will acknowledge him as Lord and King. Created by him through him, and for him. Let me move on. Fourthly, Christ is the sustainer of all things. He sustains all things. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Two clauses here. Before means he precedes, not in relation to time, but in supremacy. Since all things come from him, he cannot be part of anything that comes after him. So preceding the... <coughs> Sorry. Whew. I need my pump. 
<coughs> I may need a dip. <coughs> there are two things here highlighted. The pre-existence and the power of God, or Christ. Why mentioned before, <coughs> it relates to the priority of His existence, not the timing of His existence, not the location, but the preeminence. <coughs> In other words, before Him, there is nothing. Nothing exists other than Him. Everything then comes into creation or existence from Him, post Him. Which means everything that comes into existence after Him is therefore subordinate to Him, which again expresses His preeminence and supremacy, not chronology. This means that the primary cause of all things is the one who precedes all things. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. <clears throat> he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again, we have a connection between creation and sustaining creation. If he's the cause, the source of all things, then he also has the power to maintain everything. Everything holds together in him, which means there is nothing, absolutely nothing that is running amok. There is nothing that is out of control with regards to his creative work. No sickness, no atom, no virus is out of the sovereign control of Christ. If he is the creator, then he is also the sustainer. The two go together. That is what both Hebrews and Colossians says. If he made it, then he controls it. That, that's a cause of comfort for us. If he's the source, he's also the sustainer. But if evolution is true, if it's random selection and things just progressively getting better over time, then Christ is neither. He's not creator nor sustainer. Then creation is maintaining itself. Then the mind or the God of creation is nature itself. In that case, Christ is dethroned. So even if you are a quote-unquote theistic evolutionist, you have just dethroned the creator of the universe. If everything passively comes into existence and by itself makes itself, then Christ is not God, creator, and sustainer of all things. That is the deception that Paul is wanting to keep them, uh, to keep these saints from. <clears throat> the bond that holds the universe together, let me put it this way. Your carbon footprint is going to do nothing to saving this world. Whether you step outside on the grass 
or you go back home and you have a braai, it's, you're not going to do anything to save this world. You've got no capacity to change the outcome that God has decreed. The only one keeping science in check, the only one keeping gravity in place, the only one maintaining and sustaining this world as it is, is whom? Who, I should say? Christ. Not science, not gravity, it is Christ. Scientists have dubbed the attraction, did you get it? The attraction between um, atoms, thanks. I am not asthmatic. Apparently it comes with age. Just make, close your eyes. I know, I know I did it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, the strong attraction between atoms, they called it the strong nuclear <coughs> um, force. And they can't explain how they don't just uh, implode or <coughs> bounce out of order. They are held together not by a scientific answer. Science, yes, is important, and God is over it, and he has put it into place. But it's not the reason why an atom exists or holds its own shape. It's because of Christ. He says, be, and it is. <coughs> there are some scientific mysteries that we cannot understand or solve. There are things that we don't have a full understanding of. I mean, what, what does that verse mean, brother, that he stretched out the heavens? You can come with all your signs and try to explain it. We don't fully know. All I do know is that if it's part of creation, it's, it's ended. And what we're seeing is probably the net result of that. But God is no longer actively creating. This is why creation matters. Because Christ is preeminent. And if you snatch creation from him, you take away glory from him. Now, Verse 18. Let me finish with this. <coughs> oh, my time is gone. <coughs> and he is the head of the body, the church. And he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. <coughs> that in everything he might have <coughs> preeminence. So not only is he supreme over creation, but he's also supreme in the church. If he has sovereign right over creation and he also created the church well guess who is sovereign and has absolute supremacy over the church the head of the church that means you don't have free will in the world in his creation therefore you do not have free will in his church his head sovereign over his body which is the church he's firstborn even in the resurrection which means you don't get to claim well in the resurrection that you're going to be first in line. No, because who's first in line? It is Christ. There is one who's magnified in death and in the resurrection, only one, and it is Christ alone. So Paul's whole point is that even in death, he's supreme. Even in the resurrection, he is supreme. 
there is one who is magnified in this in these verses and it is Jesus Christ but he's talking about our redemption here he's talking about Christ saving his bride the bride doesn't come to existence without the death of the son the bride cannot be saved without the son giving his life for the church the point of the death of Jesus Christ is not the bride but to magnify the head. Christ brings glory to himself through the death, through his own death for his people. Take note in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It is interesting that Paul's statement here is not man-centered. Through the blood of his cross to himself, to reconcile to himself through the death of the Son. The focus of the death of Jesus Christ is not your salvation, but the glory that will be brought to him through his own death. We receive the net result of that. We are saved because of that. But Jesus is not like the, um, what's the song? Like a rose, uh, um, uh, trampled on the ground. You thought of me above all. No, he did not. He did not. He was not thinking about you on the cross. Yes, he died for you. But it is his glory that is on display on the cross. And it is for his glory that is on the cross. And because of that, because of the death, because he magnifies himself on the cross, you are saved. We have made what the scriptures have ultimately made, which is Christ-centered, us-centered. We are saved by grace, and even in that, glory goes to God. Often we say, oh, Jesus came to earth for us. Well, if I read this correctly... God was pleased that the fullness of deity would dwell in him. Where? On earth. So God came to earth for whom? For God. And through him to reconcile to himself, which means God was on earth to save sinners for himself. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Your salvation is for the glorification of Jesus Christ. Why? so that he may be supreme, preeminent, whether it's creation, the church, or the new creation, that he would receive the glory in all things. Father, we are thankful to you for your great kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We know we do not deserve it. We know we do not deserve you. We know we do not deserve the salvation that you provide uh, to us. We ask that you... Help us to focus on who Jesus is. Help us to live in the light of the reality of his glory, his majesty, and his supremacy. As Paul lays out in the rest of this book, the importance or the significance of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. How we need, need to walk away from the distracting, disqualifying elements in this world. And how our minds and hearts need to be set upon Christ so that we may live a life that brings glory to him. Help us as we continue to work through this book 
that you would be glorified in our response to who Jesus is. Forgive us for being self-centered. For, forgive us for not making Christ uh, the preeminent person in our lives. And help us to live in the light of that reality. From this time forward, Lord, magnify yourself in our lives for your glorious. We give thanks to you in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs>